right, guys, welcome to the very last class, uh, Doctrine of the Last Things. It's been a journey, uh, but we finally made it. Um, okay. So just want to give a sense of what we've been talking about, why we've been talking about all these things. Um, so one thing that I've tried, been trying to convey um, through this class is the importance of approaching the Bible as a story first before we approach the Bible as a, as a set of texts that we mine in order to uh, build up our doctrines. Um, and there's a really good analogy. I don't remember where I heard this or where I read this, but um, there's a really good analogy about how doctrinal development, when it is uh, too distant from the text as a story, contributes to the ongoing division of the church that we're trying to, uh, that I think we are, especially the Church of South India, is called to help bridge and heal. So. The, the way they think about the, the way this person wrote about it is with this metaphor where uh, the text is a landscape, right? And uh, just uh, sort of maybe a forest or a plain or a mountain is some, some kind of landscape, some sort of land. Uh, and you can't just live on the, the bare land. You have to build some kind of home. So you look around the land for different resources in which to construct a home. Uh, and so that's a lot of what we do when we're approaching scripture. And we, and we approach scripture with a set of questions that we want answered. Um, and we, we want to understand what the scripture's teaching is, right? So we're looking, we're sifting through the text to find answers to our questions. But what can happen is as you start laying the foundation stone, you, you can uh, develop this temptation to build higher and higher and higher until you've built um, what some sometimes people call castles in the air, right? Like with no real strong, no real connection to the text anymore, right? You've built these very detailed theories about purgatory or about, um, you know, just different doctrines. And as you build more and more, you become uh, you, you build greater and grander castles, right? You become more comfortable and, and you want to defend what you've built, right? Uh, and so, and then what hap ends up happening is instead of taking the text for what it is, you are always looking at the text in terms of how can it help defend and expand my fortress, right? Uh, and so I, I think this is true because this is what has tended to happen, I think, as doctrine has developed in the different traditions. Um, and, I, and I think as we looked at church history, what is tragic is uh, we recognize a lot of times the initial impulse for a split uh, in the church is not so much doctrinal. Doctrinal questions are involved, but a lot of times it's ethnic, social, political. And, but once the split has happened, smart people always try to justify the split. And so they end up looking through the text to find um, ways to justify um, the split that, and to justify to themselves that the other person does not believe rightly. Uh, anyway, I, I, was, I just offer that to you guys. Um, I think it's always better to stay humble. We have to stay humble in the sense of staying lower to the ground, staying lower to the text 
as the story. We can't, um, we have to have something to say about creation. We have to have something to say about what the Bible is. We have to have something to say about how salvation works, about what the church is, what the last things are, which we'll get into what's called eschatology, right? Eschaton from the Greek word eschaton, which means the end. So the things about the end. We have to be able to say all those things, especially those of us who want to, you know, teach our Sunday school class or teach our kids and grandkids about the faith. Uh, so we have to have something to say, but I think it's always better to remember that whatever we say is subordinate to the story of the scripture as a whole. Um, so that's been one of the ambitions of this class is to help us um, develop as, as a group of CSI people in North America, I wanted to help us develop that sensibility towards questions of doctrine and scripture. And I think that will help us maintain our unity going forward, even if we come to different conclusions about what the text means on particular questions, because we will share a sensibility about valuing the story of scripture first and foremost. Hope that makes sense. Um, today, we're going to be talking about the four last things. Uh, I have not had time to build a really great outline. I mean, I don't know if my PowerPoints are ever that appreciated, but uh, I have not had as much time to develop it. So um, I apologize for that. It, this will be uh, a much more limited PowerPoint presentation. But if you guys have questions about anything I'm talking about, please feel free to uh, chime in. All right. So the four last things are traditionally, especially in Roman Catholic and um, early Protestant circles like Lutheranism, uh, even reform circles, um, th there are four topics that are taught about that refer to eschatology or the last things. Those four main topics are death, final judgment, heaven, and hell. Okay. Um, and I have added some subtopics that are um, I, that I think I think um, we need to talk about as well because they are more uh, they are they are very prevalent in Scripture, especially in the New Testament. So uh, the resurrection of the body, which is related to death, millennialism. The term millennialism obviously is not in the New Testament, but there is this idea of the thousand-year reign of the saints that's found in the book of Revelation. And it's, it's um, very caught up with um, questions of when will the final judgment come? And uh, what is the future course of history for the, what does the future course of history look like for the church and the world before the final judgment comes? So to preview that a little bit, like does the world get worse and worse? And does the church get smaller and smaller before Jesus comes back, the second coming, the parousia in Greek, right? Like, um, does the world get worse and worse? Well, that's going to color how we approach the world, right? If we think the world's getting worse and worse, or is the world going to get better and better, right? Is the world going to, um, are more and more people going to be saved? Um, and then Jesus will come, or do we not really know? So that, that's the third option there. It's a, it, it'll, it'll be a mixed bag. There will be progress and there will be a decline. And it's just going to continue on like that until Jesus comes back. So that's the question that is, um, th those are the concerns that are, that should be gathered up under that term millennialism. 
And then there's the question of heaven. What is heaven? Um, and for me, I think the New Testament shows that the end goal or the end state is not necessarily heaven, but new creation, which is the reunion of heaven and earth. And then finally, we'll talk about hell as well. Okay. So um, again, getting back to this idea of story, um, when we talk about the end, right, we need to keep in mind um, it's it's difficult for us to evaluate the Bible as a story or to understand the Bible as a story unless we have an idea of the end of the story. That's what I'm trying to say. So the Bible is a story of all things uh, from the beginning to the end, the creation of all things, the fall that alienated our world from the creator, um, God's redeeming work in history, starting with Abraham and then, and then through the nation of Israel. And then uh, to the true Israelite, Jesus Christ. And then finally, uh, the body of Christ, which is the church, which is continuing on in history. And then ending with the consummation of all things that God has promised. This marriage between heaven and earth that we see a picture of in uh, Revelation, near the end of Revelation. So in this last class, uh, we're coming to the last things again technically called eschatology um, and there, sorry. And there's nothing um, more decisive for our, for our understanding of the shape of the story than the end of the story. Um, and I, I wanna contrast the story of the Bible and its understanding of the end to some common stories that the world tells itself and that the world has told itself about the end of the world, right? So the story we've been telling uh, uh, ourselves culturally in the West over the, uh, and I think uh, through other parts of the world as well as globalization has happened, is the story of progress, right? So that's the last one here. Um, the doctrine of progress had its origins in the 18th century, <clears throat> excuse me, through the enlightenment and has shaped our thinking over the last two centuries. Um, and it's a story that teaches us to assume that whatever is older, primitive, uh, is inferior and backwards, and that whatever is newer or comes later in history is more refined, more developed, and superior. Um, it is uh, a story that teaches us that uh, on and on through human history, we should, uh, we should anticipate an up, overall an, up, an upward uh, ascent, right, that humankind is going to develop more um, develop into uh, more mature forms of morality, more uh, that its technology will increase, its mastery over the world will increase, and that that will just continue on and on and on. Um, another story that the world has often told is the story of decline, right? The story of decline is that there is a past golden age from which we all are descending and we are just going down and down and down. Um, this is a story that is told in a lot of ancient societies. So if you ever read any of like the old Greek myths, you'll read the story about how when the gods first created humankind, they created humankinds out of um, the gold, right? They were the most pure and uh, beautiful human beings. But then for different reasons, the gods destroyed them. Then they created them out of silver. Then they created them out of bronze. Finally, they created them out of clay which is us, right? And so there's this idea of, it, that's capturing the idea of descent, 
right? There was this past golden age, but it wasn't sustainable. And so with every iteration, with every uh, new generation, uh, there is more and more decay, right? Um, so that's another ancient story. And that teaches, see, these stories teach you how to approach the world. And part of the reason why we need to be alive to these stories is because they also influence how we approach uh, the Bible. Um, so another story, an even more ancient story, is that of time as a wheel, right? Um, this is very prevalent, especially in, in the East, uh, with Hinduism and Buddhism. Uh, there's this never-ending cycle of births and rebirths, uh, and the goal of those Eastern religions are um, are the goal is to try and find a way to escape the wheel, right? Because it's a never-ending cycle of suffering if you're always um, living and dying and living and dying and living and dying. And what you want to do is to escape that cycle. Uh, the cycle of reincarnations. So anyway, these are different stories that the world tells about the end of the world or how the world uh, will go. What's interesting is um, in each of these stories, there seems to be like a disjunction or a separation between um, your personal your personal destiny uh, as an individual living in this body, right, with your particular attachments to your family or to your home or to to the place where you're born, um, there's a there's a there's a separation between your personal destiny and the destiny of the human race, right? Like if the human race reaches its fulfillment in the year twenty thousand A.D. Uh, under the story of progress, something that I can be assured of is that I won't be there. Right. Unless I'm Elon Musk and I like cryogenically freeze myself or something like that. Um, I will not be in the year 20,000 AD. And so my personal destiny and the destiny of the human race is separate. Uh, what we see in the biblical story is the reintegration of our personal stories and the story of the human race and the way that reintegration uh, occurs is through the overcoming of death through the resurrection. Okay. And so that's really what I want to convey is uh, the biblical story is the one that gives you as an individual hope that is commensurate or that, um, that uh, grows alongside with hope for the human race as a whole and hope for creation as a, as a rule, as a whole. So how do we see that story? Um, let's look at the biblical understanding of the under, of the end understood as a whole. The central theme of the Old Testament is that the Lord reigns. So the Lord, the God who delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt is actually, the theme of the Old Testament is to show or to prove that that God, the God who delivered the slaves from Egypt is the Lord and creator of all the universe. And that one day, all the nations will acknowledge him as such. And that's the theme of the Old Testament. But for the most part, overwhelmingly, um, the Old Testament sees the end as something that is in this world. So um, I know there are a lot of like the pop Christianity or folk Christianity understandings of, of like the destiny of the world as it's going to be burned up. And 
the good Christians will be evacuated from it, from the burning up of the world and brought into heaven. But that is not, I don't think that's the, the picture of the end as presented in the Bible as a whole, and certainly not the end as presented in the Old Testament. Because what, what you see in the Old Testament are these visions, right? Like in Isaiah, the lion and the lamb lying down together and a little child leading them, or every valley being exalted, every mountain being laid low, uh, every man dwelling under the shelter of his own vine and fig tree, and no one shall make him afraid, right? So these are all pictures of the end state of creation. And what it looks like thematically is a fulfillment of what was meant to be in Eden right? Thematically, it is the, um, the Eden project reaching its completion uh, and, and even going beyond what we thought Eden would be, right? It's this idea of, uh, of like a bucolic state, like a, a garden world, the world as a garden cultivated uh, where the glory of God dwells over all, not just all human beings, but all of creation. Um, and so that's the end that is contemplated in the Old Testament. It's not this separation between earth and heaven, but a bringing down of the rule of heaven on earth, an extension of that rule to earth. Um, <clears throat> it's true. So what's interesting in the Old Testament is there's not a lot of discussion or exploration of um, what happens after death. So if you've read your Old Testament, you, you'll realize that there are hints, right? There's... Um, David writing in, I think Psalm 110, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. So there, what is Sheol? <laughs> like the land of the dead, right? So there's some sort of contemplation of like, there's this land where spirits go. Um, there's an allusion to that also in Second Samuel or First Samuel, where um, Saul, yeah, it was First Samuel, I think. Saul, uh, before he um, is about to fight a battle, wants to... Uh, wants to speak with Samuel, uh, who is dead. And so he can't talk to him. So he finds a medium or basically like a witch to summon his spirit. And when she does that, Samuel gets really mad at Saul and is like, don't you know, you're not supposed to do this kind of stuff. And so then, um, so, so again, the, just showing this idea that there's a sense that there are shades or uh, spirits of people after they have passed away. But again, it's not really developed. There's not any like real sense of like where they are. Are they with God? Are they in some other place? That kind of thing. Um, so so there is, there's not a lot of exploration of what happens after death. But what makes the decisive difference um, <laughs> actually happens in the intertestamental period. So, I mean, earlier on in Ezekiel, you had talk about like the dry bones and God giving life even to those who are dead. But that was more metaphorical about the return of Israel to, um, to the promised land after the period of exile. But <clears throat> what happened in the intertestamental period uh, after the Jews returned from exile is they went through a period where they were ruled by the Persians and then later on by the Greeks. And there was a, something called the Maccabean Wars, which you can read about in First and Second Maccabees. Um, and it, it's a real historical thing that happened where righteous Jews uh, rebelled against the pagan Greek kings who were trying to impose pagan worship upon the Jews, especially in the temple. 
uh, and they were outraged. Like there was a temple of Zeus that was erected in the temple that, you know, Nehemiah helped rebuild. Um, and this, and so the Jews got so angry about this that they revolted and um, they fought a war and then came the Sabbath. And because they were trying to obey the Sabbath, they refused to fight. Well, obviously, like the Greek armies slaughtered them, hundreds of thousands of Jews. And that prompted this uh, this thinking because it was impossible to impossible to believe that all those who had died in faith to the Lord would be excluded from the final coming of the kingdom of God that the Old Testament had been talking about, the reign of the Lord, the day of the Lord. It was And the fact that God is not the God of the dead, but the living, right? That is said over and over again in the Old Testament. And so it became impossible for them to believe that these righteous dead would miss out on that, that their, their personal destiny was separate from the final destiny of the human race where God would be all in all. And so that's what caused uh, the Jews to begin to develop this doctrine of the resurrection, right? And it was not uh, accepted by all the Jews. You can read about that in the New Testament. It was taught by the Pharisees, um, but it was rejected by the Sadducees, who did not believe that the resurrection of the dead is a thing. For us as Christians, we believe in the resurrection of the dead because Jesus endorsed it, right? He was straight up asked by uh, the people, you know, are, who's correct, the Pharisees or the Sadducees? And he said, the Pharisees, without qualification. He endorsed the Pharisees on, on this particular issue, that there is a resurrection of the, of the dead. Um, so Jesus saw himself as, um, as, the, as the coming or as the embodiment of the Lord's reign. Right. That's why when Jesus uh, begins his ministry, he begins saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel, the gospel meaning good news. So what's the good news? He's asking people to believe the kingdom of God is at hand. And through his ministry, through the things he says and does, giving sight to the blind, giving uh, hearing to the deaf, driving out demons. He is showing that he he's not just announcing the kingdom of God. He is the kingdom of God. He is the personal presence of the kingdom. Um, so in, in the beginning, Jesus is seeking to invite Israel as a whole to recognize that the kingdom of God is at hand in himself, right? Uh, that, and so in, in doing so, accept their vocation uh, to be the suffering servant on behalf of the world. Okay, so let me um, let me have a little pause here because this gets into uh, the doctrine of election, which I promised I would talk about, and I keep forgetting to talk about. So, um, the doctrine of election in the Bible. Oh, let me back up. Commonly in uh, Christian circles today, the doctrine of election is taken to mean you are chosen, you are not chosen, right? God chooses you to uh, to love you, to accept you, to uh, to bring you into his family and you other person who God has passed over, you are not selected. Right. But that is not, again, if we're staying true to the story, that's not really the way the doctrine of election plays out in the story. <laughs> the way the, the doctrine of election plays out in the old Testament and the new Testament uh, can be seen in the paradigmatic case of Abraham, right? Abraham is chosen by God uh, to be God's friend for God to put his special love 
and attention on. Um, but God makes clear from the very beginning that Abraham's choosing is not just for Abraham to have the privilege of knowing God. Abraham's choosing is for the sake of the nations, right? For the blessing of the nations. And you see over and over again that the uh, child who is chosen does not have this like perfect life. In fact, a lot of times the choosing of God means, yes, the lavishing of love, but also vocation to, to suffering, right? So Jacob is chosen rather than Esau. Um, but Esau is blessed, right? Like when you come across Esau later on, he's a, he's a chieftain. He's a, he's a captain of like many armies. He's, he's the, the father of his own nation. Same thing earlier on with Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael is also blessed by God. But Isaac is chosen to bear the seed of promise, which will one day um, give birth to, to Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate seed, right? But it's also a vocation to be with God, uh, which means blessing, but also suffering for the sake of the rest of the world. So the same thing is true over and over again, you know, from uh, Jacob to Judah to uh, David, on and on. You see that uh, the choosing of God is always uh, double-sided. It's a choosing towards uh, love, but also suffering for the sake of blessing the nations. And so Jesus in his ministry, when, when you uh, understand how much he um, identifies himself with the suffering servant in Isaiah, um, you see that Jesus is taking on that vocation, that he is intimately connected with God, his father, and yet also believes that he is to take on this vocation of suffering in order to redeem Israel. And in Jesus's understanding, like this suffering is to redeem Israel so that Israel can be true to its vocation of um, being with God, being loved by God, but also suffering for the sake of the world. Um, and when Jesus dies and rises again, he makes clear that this the, the new Israel will be all those Jews and Gentiles who are united to him, right? So, so that's the way the doctrine of election works. There are separate questions about like predestination and all that kind of stuff, which uh, I, I guess I could get into it now, but I don't want to. But if you guys want to talk about it, just uh, let me know. Um, but yeah, so election is about just as much about God's love as it is the suffering God places upon those he chooses in order to redeem the rest of the world. Okay, so when Jesus, so this gets us back uh, back on track, right? Like, so Jesus sees himself as, um, as the suffering servant. And th that is the reason why he goes to the cross in order to redeem Israel and the world. Um, and so then when he rises again, that's why, you know, I think we talked about this last class too, after his resurrection and after his period of teaching his disciples for 40 days, and uh, for 40 days, um, they ask him, Lord, will you restore the kingdom now? This is the beginning of Acts, right? Will you restore the kingdom now? Because this is what the Old Testament had been all about, like bringing the kingdom of God to earth. And Jesus says, no, right? Jesus says, no. Uh, well, he doesn't say no. He said his answer is uh, the time for that final restoration is uh, in the hands of the father. But you go and be my witnesses throughout the world 
and wait for the Holy Spirit first and then be my witnesses throughout the world. And basically, Jesus is saying there's the separation between the resurrection and the final judgment. And that separation will be the age of the church, where the church is Jesus's body and Jesus's continuing witness throughout the world. So um, so that's the story as a whole. And this makes clear, like, um, when you when you approach this story, the uh, the traditional like topics of death and judgment and heaven and hell, they take a different kind of um, valence. You don't approach them the same way as you do if you if you first just come to the Bible and start looking for verses about death or judgment or heaven or hell. Um, I, I think we need to have an understanding of this story as a whole. And as 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 part of the story, Jesus does make clear that uh, there will be people who reject his kingdom uh, and they will suffer like loss. There will, they will be um, shut out and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Right. Um, but there are different terms. We'll get into this when we get to talking about heaven and hell. But there are different words that are used for uh, different concepts like um in our in our English Bibles, the word hell is used to translate a lot of different words like Hades, Gehenna, Sheol. In some of the newer translations, they're trying to, uh, I think, go back to the original words. Uh, and those those differences matter because they refer to different concepts. So we'll get into that as well. All right. Uh, any questions so far or thoughts? All right, cool. So first, let's talk about death. So traditionally, death is understood as the separation of man's mortal body and immortal soul. Um, according to the biblical story, um, death is, we talked about this when we, we had the class on creation too, right? Um, death seems to be the logical consequence of cutting yourself off from the source of all life, right? Which is God. Uh, so Sin is the cause of that separation or the state of that separation. And so that's why it makes sense to say, as Paul says in Romans, the wages of sin is death, right? The, the, lot, the consequence of sin is death because we are cutting ourselves off from the source of all life. Uh, but in the biblical story, we also see that death is an enemy that's overcome by Jesus who descended to the dead. This, again, this is not elaborated on a lot. In the scripture, but it is talked about in First Peter chapter three and chapter four. This idea that after his death, Jesus descended to Sheol, the land of the dead, or Hades, the land of the dead, and preached the gospel. And what happened? What was the outcome of that? We don't. We're not told, right? But there is this idea that Christ went to the land of the dead. And why is that significant? That's significant because. Um, if death is the logical consequence of rejecting God, it's interesting that now even death has been invaded by God, right? And so the church fathers used to um, refer to this idea all the time, but now there is no place where you can escape the rule of God or escape uh, the rule of Christ, right? Christ has invaded everywhere, Um even the land of the dead. And that's why Jesus, it's a significant, I think that uh, in Matthew, Jesus says, I have the keys to death and Hades, 
right? I have the keys to death in Hades. That means all there's no place that is safe for rebellion from me. Uh, I'm Lord of it all now. <laughs> um, in the New Testament, again, though, this is this idea of the land of the dead or what happens after death, just like in the Old Testament, it's not developed very well. The emphasis in the New Testament is on the resurrection of the body. Uh, so you can see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 to 28. So, um, Chris, can I ask you to be my uh, Bible reader? Would you mind reading? Chris Matthew, could you, could you read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 12 to 28? First Corinthians uh, chapter 15. Yeah, verses 12 to 28. 12 to 28, okay. Uh, now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of we are of all we are of all men most to be pitied. You said to verse 20. Is it 28? 28. Okay. Um, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die. So also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjugation under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjugation in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted, that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Brian, I think your uh, mic's muted. Sorry. First I said, thanks, Chris. Then I said, uh, this passage is teaching the importance of the idea of the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the body, to uh, Paul's teaching, to the apostolic teaching, right, on what Jesus Christ has accomplished, which is the overcoming of death. Um, that is the supreme victory that Jesus Christ has accomplished. And this is the way he reintegrates like our personal histories with the history of the human race. Uh, it's not just our souls that are saved, right? It's our bodies that are saved. This is part of the reason why 
uh, it's always been the Christian practice to bury the body instead of cremating the body. Um, not that, you know, your body can't be resurrected if, you know, you or a loved one has been cremated, but um, there's this, there's this, uh, there's this picture being, uh, there's, there's an attempt even in the act of death to preach to the world what it is that we believe and that we are proclaiming to the world we believe that we are planting the body because the body will spring back, right? Like this body is a seed from which the immortal body will spring back by the grace of God at the end of time. Um, and so that's the reason why we bury bodies. Uh, also what's interesting, I think, in what Chris read is this idea that Christ is reigning and that when he reigns, um, he will hand over the kingdom to the God, the father, after he has destroyed all uh, opposition to him. And that once he has done that and he's placed everything, all his enemies under his feet, then God will come and be all in all. That's the, the end, verse 28, right? Um, God will be all in all. And so that's the end towards which this story is heading. First Corinthians chapter 15 is very, very important. I think it's been neglected a lot in understanding the end of the biblical story, but I, I think it's the place where Paul is clearest on how the story is supposed to end. All right, so moving on to uh, judgment. Traditionally, there's been this separation and maybe like you guys can see there, there, there might be like these confusions in your own mind too. Traditionally, there's been the separation between a particular judgment and a general judgment, right? And so, um, and I don't think, this is me personally, I don't think this is found in scripture as clearly, but if you disagree, we can talk about it. Um, so the, the idea is that when every person dies, uh, they are brought to the throne of God. And there is a particular judgment on that person that is pronounced, like whether you are in or out. Uh, and then after the second coming and the resurrection of the body, there's going to be a general judgment where everyone is assembled before God. Uh, and God will um, say once and for all, everyone who is in and out. Uh, again, I mean, they're... they're these are very intelligent people, so I'm simplifying uh, like the the um, the teaching a lot. But there seem to be two judgments, right? Judgment at the end of death and judgment uh, at the end of time. And again, it's it's going into this idea of the separation between our personal destiny and the destiny of the human race as a whole. But I don't think um, I don't think that is really found in scripture. Maybe that's the way it happens, but I don't necessarily think that's what. Paul or the other apostles are teaching. So if you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 13 to 17, again the emphasis is on is not on like particular judgment or general judgment or anything like that. It's on the day of the Lord, which is this theme that you find throughout the Old Testament and continuing on in Jesus's own ministry, which is when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness. And so Paul is teaching when you read for I'm I'm not going to read those verses, but when you read that passage you see that Paul is identifying that the day of the Lord is the day Jesus reappears, that there's a, there's, he's identifying, he's putting those two things together because the kingdom of God is perfectly embodied in Jesus Christ. When he comes again in power is when the day of the Lord is. And when that happens, um, Paul writes, those who are asleep in him will wake up and those who are alive when he comes will meet with him in the air. So that, phrase meet him in the air is what a lot of people have pointed to 
to uh, justify things like the rapture, which is this idea that we will be taken up into the air and Jesus will take us away. But the emphasis here like makes clear that when we meet him in the air, it's as part of Jesus coming back down, right? Uh, so it's not about Jesus taking us away. We're going out to meet him, to welcome him as he returns to earth. And uh, I think what uh, commentators have often said that when Paul is reading this, he's alluding to the practice of when a Roman emperor is approaching one of his cities, one of the imperial cities, the inhabitants of the city will go out. They won't allow the emperor to come into the city by himself or with his own retinue. They will go out to meet him as like a gesture of honor and escort him back into the city to welcome him. And so that I think I think I'm convinced that that's also what Paul is referring to there. Um, another thing about the judgment uh, that I think is significant is that the final judgment will be surprising, right? Um, so the clearest teaching Jesus himself had on what the judgment will look like is the parable of the sheep and the goats, which I'm sure you guys are familiar with. Um, in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. Um, and I'll just, I'll read it real quick for you guys. When the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So uh, again, I think this parable has also been neglected when we come to uh, thinking about questions of judgment in light of the story of scripture. Um, it seems like Jesus is here, at least in this passage, is saying that there will be surprises at the judgment. There will be people who think that they are in but find out that they are out because of <clears throat> the way they treated him, right? Because of his identification with the least of these, <clears throat> the way they treated the least of these is the way they treated him. 
So it's very Christocentric, right? Like it's still very focused on Christ, but the criteria seem to be a little scrambled from, I think, the way we are used to thinking about how judgment operates. And there will be people who think they are out who will find that they are in because of the way they treated Jesus in the way that they treated the least of these. Um, all right, so then we're coming to our, our final topics. Uh, this here is like a little uh, illustration from Dante's Inferno. <coughs> uh, heaven, hell, and new creation. Um, I, I hope one of the things you've, you've um, concluded from this set of talks is that heaven and hell as um, final states that we enter into um, the idea that heaven and hell are final states that we enter into after we die is a misconception. And it's not necessarily what's taught in scripture. There are, again, there are hints like Paul talks in uh, 1 Thessalonians to those who fall asleep that they are in Christ. Well, what does that really mean? In Revelation, there's a, pic a picture of martyrs, those who have died, um, those who have died professing faith in Christ, who were, who were killed because of their faith in Christ, that they are in the throne room of God, right? But beyond that, we don't really have a lot of pictures of what happens to believers when they die, other than that they are in Christ. And so we trust that somehow uh, they are, it's, it's uh, akin to sleeping, it seems like they're not uh, fully conscious in some way. They're asleep in Christ. Um, they're not in the fullness of life, probably because they're separated from their resurrected bodies. Uh, but we trust that they are in Christ's hands. And that's all we can say, right? We trust that they are in Christ's hands. Um, for those who die outside of the hope of Christ, we don't really know what their immediate state is after death. What we know is that um, Jesus in his parables refers to Sheol, Hades, the land of the dead, which in older translations was also translated hell. Um, and so there's this idea maybe that uh, those who die outside of Christ are there in Sheol, in the land of the dead, whatever that is. Maybe. We don't really know. These are also parables Jesus was talking about. It's always hard to know exactly what he meant uh, when, he, when he was teaching on some of these things. Um, and Sheol is also, Hades is also referred to in, in the book of Revelation as well, because at the end, Hades will give up its dead. So there's this idea of like a realm that contains the dead. So possibly, you know, that's what's going on there. Uh, but again, we don't really know. Um, there's a distinction that I alluded to this earlier. There's a distinction between Hades slash Sheol. Hades is the Greek word. Sheol is the Hebrew word, uh, the land of the dead, um, and Gehenna, which is uh, Jesus is referring actually to an area outside of Jerusalem where trash was thrown, uh, and often that trash was burned, right? So that area was called Gehenna. And so when Jesus is referring to Gehenna as the fate of those who reject him, he's basically saying that there will come a time uh, when those who reject the kingdom finally are um, treated as worthless, as having no value, and, uh, and will be, you know, shut out, weeping and gnashing of teeth, um, will have the eternal fire, again, an allusion to Gehenna. And will burn up. Um, there are a lot of different ways. So 
So that's the teaching on heaven and hell so far, insofar as it uh, pertains to the story of scripture. Paul talks about this as well. He, he talks about the persecutors of the church in First Thessalonians who will um, burn up, basically. So I, I think he's building on Jesus's language there. Um, there's also language in the New Testament of every knee bowing down, every tongue confessing that Jesus is Lord. Um, and so Christians throughout uh, church history have always um, struggled to understand what exactly is the fate of those who finally reject Jesus. And for some Christians, even, is it possible for people when they see the beauty of Jesus come uh, after the resurrection of the body, is it possible them, for them to fully reject Jesus? So those have always been questions. So when you read Augustine, uh, in one of his letters, he alludes to the fact that there, um, that there are at least two positions within the early church of his time on how to understand hell. There are some people like him who believe that hell is a place of eternal torment, of torture, basically, for those who reject God. And then there's another group of people who believe that um, that in the end, the fire of that in the end, because of God's love, even the fire of hell will end up being the burning away of the trash in people's lives will end up leading to their, excuse me, I'm trying to plug in my computer, will end up leading to their purification and that they also will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Again, this this is another, uh, another group of Christians. It was a prominent position at the time uh, that Augustine was teaching. Um, but because of Augustine's immense influence in the church, um, his his teaching ended up winning out in the Roman church and through that, through the Protestant churches as well. The Eastern Orthodox and the Orthodox churches have always had a slightly different understanding of like uh, hell, which is, uh, I think, captured in C.S. Lewis's uh, Narnia books, actually, at the end, where um, where the there, there's, uh, if you guys have ever read The Last Battle, there's this idea that um, at the very end, all the, the, the old Narnia is destroyed and all the people in Narnia who were saved from that destruction were um, brought into a stable. And then Aslan invites them in through a door into a broader country. And you find out that that broader country is the new Narnia, right? And as you explore the Narnia, the new Narnia, you find that you can always go higher up and deeper and that there's always more to explore. It's basically the new creation for Narnia. But there's a group of dwarves who refuse Aslan's invitation. And so they stay in a circle, like refusing to look up because they deny that Aslan is there, that there's a better country. They think it's a trick and they refuse to go in. Uh, and that's always been kind of the, the Eastern understanding of what hell is, is like a persistent refusal to enter into God's love or even the experience of God's love. But instead of experiencing God's love as a healing river, you experience it as a fire that is tormenting you because you reject that love. So again, th these are different emphases, different ways of understanding it. There's also been a position on um, the final end for those who are non-believers. 
um, that uh, that's captured in the book of Re it looks to the book of Revelation throwing into the lake of fire, um, and it's and it's stated in Revelation that the lake of fire is the second death, and so there's this this is called uh, annihilationalism. Uh, one of the great evangelical Anglican preachers of the last century, John Stott, if you're familiar with him, he was an annihilationist. It's basically the idea that after the final judgment, those who reject Jesus Christ will just cease to be. They'll be thrown into the lake of fire, which means that they will cease to be. They will cease to exist. Because again, and this kind of logically flows through stuff we were talking about earlier, um, when you cut yourself off from the source of life, the logical consequence is death. So those are the three positions historically. I would say um, the universalist uh, camp, which is the idea that everyone will be saved eventually, some through um, a lifetime of faith in Jesus Christ, some after going through the purging fires of God's love. That universalist camp is very much a minority today. Um, then there's the what's called the infernalist camp or uh, eternal conscious torment camp, the Augustinian position, which is, I think, the majority of Christians today believing that non-believers um, will be thrown into Gehenna and will experience the fire of God's wrath. And then there's the annihilationist camp, which is that those who reject Christ will cease to be, uh, they will cease to exist. Um, there's also a uh, kind of a... <laughs> a middle position between annihilationism and uh, eternal conscious torment, the Augustinian position that's articulated by N.T. Wright, who's been very influential on me. Um, he's an Anglican bishop in England. And it's basically this idea that um, those who reject Christ are rejecting the future that God has for them. And so they will continue to exist, but they will always be subhuman, exhuman. Uh, and this is like a very tragic and pitiable state. And so that, so for Wright, when he's looking at these questions about like trash, fit for nothing, he's uh, or fire, he's reading them all as metaphorical, obviously, uh, not necessarily like that people who reject Christ are literally in flames of torment. Uh, but he's saying, you know, this is this is not a good thing that happens to them. They exist in the new creation, but they are subhuman at that point. It's interesting. So again, a lot of speculations here, right? Um, and part of what I'm trying to emphasize is that we can disagree with one another on conclusions about those stuff if we stay true to the story, right? That there is a final punishment. There is a final judgment that comes. That at the end, uh, what we are looking for is the resurrection of the body and the coming back of new creation. And that there is there are consequences for accepting Christ and or rejecting him at the end. Uh, so that's the class for today. Does anyone have any questions? I know I covered a lot of ground. Very deep. Thank you, Brian. Yeah, you're welcome. All right, guys. Um, well, this concludes our years of classes uh, over six topics. Uh, thanks to everyone for being patient. Um, I'd like to continue talking about different topics in the future, but maybe we'll give it a couple uh, weeks or a few months of a break. 
Um, and I'm going to throw out there, if you guys have any ideas for things that you'd like to see covered, let me know. But when I, when we do do the class, uh, a new class, I'm going to throw it out on the big group meet. So anyone who's interested can join again. And I'll probably after a couple of weeks, delete the current group meet that we're on. Um, but again, thank you everyone for joining. And if you guys have any questions on any of these things, or if you want any of the resources that I've created or that I've been looking at, let me know. I'm always happy to share. Thanks, Brian. All right, guys. Thanks. See y'all later. Hey, Brian. Bye. Hey, Brian. Hey, what's up? What are your personal 